Hello, you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, welcome everyone. I feel... Uh, I feel a little awkward because we welcomed Steve and then you clapped because you saw me and Max up here. But we're going to have an opportunity to, to welcome Steve up in a moment. So uh, with that said, um, we want to welcome everyone who's here with us in person. want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. If we've not had, met, had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is JP and I would love an opportunity to meet with you after the service. Um, and what we want to do today um, is we're really excited as we just heard Thomas share. We have Steve Captain with us here today. And, and some of you know that name and some of you don't. And so what we want to do... Um, Um, is have an opportunity to to give a little bit of an introduction to him. And so in order to introduce Steve, I'm going to introduce you to Max Green. Um, As many of you may be aware, we have our missions committee that has 10 different missionaries that we support uh, globally and and stateside. And then we have a missionary link who's one of our um, church members who is connected to each one of those 10 missionaries. If you walked in to the, um, the lobby and you noticed inside, we have the new map that shows where the different missionaries are. And it has information screens where you could go and you could find out more information about each of the different missionaries we support. But then also you'll notice that there's the faces of our missionary links there as well. So you can know to whom you can ask more questions or find out more information. So what we want to do is I'm going to, we're going to welcome up Steve Captain and then have Max Green give an introduction a little bit about Steve. So as Steve comes up, can we welcome him up? And then I'm going to hand the microphone to Max. He said pretty much everything I was going to say, so I got to ad lib everything. Anyway, <laughs> no, that's not, um, <laughs> Steve, as you well know, um, was a member of our church here from 1996 to 2000 as the youth pastor. And then he uh, went off to the mission field. And when LV and I first joined the the um, missionary committee. I was assigned to represent Steve in his ministry. And today was the first day that I've gotten to meet him, even though we have texted and talked on the phone quite a bit. It was just a a real pleasure for me to um, finally meet Steve and um, get to know him a little better this morning. So, and... uh, With that, um, going into the service, um, I'm going to read the um, uh, scripture for this morning. It's from from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men among you whom you are whom you know to be full of the spirit and wisdom 
we will turn the responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole church. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmetheus, and Nicholas, and from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Acts chapter six, one through seven. All right, thank you so much. It's good to be here. Um, as, I, as I said in the first service, I pretty much grew up here in, in many, many ways. I, this church provided me uh, an opportunity to minister and kind of cut my teeth, so to speak, in ministry, and I made a lot of mistakes, um, but still, church loved me through that and has kept me going and uh, commissioned me when the Lord called me to Kathmandu, Nepal. And it was there that I met my wife, who is in the back there, Anju. She can raise her hand in the back. Born and raised in Kathmandu, Nepal. And I've got uh, two girls here. I actually have a boy as well, but he's downstairs. Anjali, who's uh, in her senior year in high school. Alina, eighth grade. And Ethan is downstairs. He's 10 years old. I was content with these two. I really was. I was happy here. I came to visit here, and you guys treated me so well. Um, we were here for about six months, and it was during that time, I won't get into the details, but during that time that the Lord decided to bless us with a boy, and I'm like, oh my goodness, and it is a blessing because I was a bit older, and I'm like, man, I got to keep up with this kid, so I got to start exercising and running and all that other stuff, so he really helped me um, become healthy and everything else, and yeah, the church commissioned me uh, through the thick and thin of it all, they commissioned me to Nepal and laid their hands upon me, and then they gave me a subtle little push to make sure that I was serious, like, no, you're out of here, buddy. You're, you're going, and you're not coming back, but they welcomed me back many, many times and treated me well. And in Nepal, um, I ministered there for 14 and a half years with my wife. All the kids were born there. Then we shifted to Malaysia. I forgot to mention that last service, where we served for five and a half years, Returned here during the pandemic, uh, kind of got trapped here, and, and now we're in transition. And it is hard to believe that it has been five years since I've shared in this church because of the pandemic and everything else. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. Usually when I go back and, and forth between Asia, I come back and time kind of folds in on itself and everything seems like yesterday, and it does, but there are so many changes here. I can't get away with that. The church is beautiful, so many different things, different from when I was here, and it's wonderful. What a blessing. Um, so with that in, in mind, let me, let me just pray before we begin and move us into taking a look at this passage. Lord Jesus, it is good to be here at a place that is very much home in many, many ways. Um, also, uh, 
home to, uh, to some of my kids that remember worshiping here, learning more about you in Sunday school. Some people that are here right now have had an active hand in ministering to my children, planting the seeds of faith within them, and what a joy it is to watch that faith take root and bear fruit. And so, Lord, we pray the same thing for this message, that your Holy Spirit would continue to fill this place, and you would take the word that we're looking at today and do the things that only you can do, plant it deep within our hearts, nurture it to take root and bear fruit. Lord Jesus, speak to us through your word in a way that was not intended, beyond what I intended, and I'm among those that I ask you to speak to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for the last several years, I've been working on a doctorate, doing some research on Nepali young people because my heart is in Nepal, and especially that high school age group. And I went around and did some surveys, did some interviews and everything else, and at the end of it all, one of our former young people from a youth group in Nepal invited us to attend a concert at a hotel. My wife and I said, let's go. We got dressed up and we went there. And when I looked at the young people out there dancing and having a good time, it looked like someone had airlifted them in from Los Angeles. It was amazing. The girls, they looked elegant. They were wearing these beautiful cocktail dresses. The guys were equally chic, dressed well, and everything else. And I thought, wow, what, what, what an awesome experience. The music itself was this incredible blend of Eastern and Western music and everything else. It was beautiful. And the young people themselves, they were not experiencing that balance. They were the extreme of Westernism right there before my eyes. And my first thought was, who can minister to these young people? What church in Nepal could they possibly fit into? And of course, my mind was going crazy the, the entire time. And then the next day, when I talked to some other people, I found out that a lot of the girls that were there had actually come from the village, been bussed into the village, from the village, and they changed clothes before coming to the concert. They arrived dressed in traditional garb, and then they changed into these elegant cocktail dresses and joined the party. And I thought, wow, what a demonstration of adolescent identity experimentation, right? Right before my eyes. That's incredible. And... I still thought, who can understand these dynamics? Who can minister to them? Who can they reach them? And even if they could, where would they fit? Where would they fit? Well, that's not a lot different from our world, is it? I mean, the young people even in in Western countries, they're experimenting with different identities all the time to such an extent that they they adopt a completely different way of thinking maybe even have their own vocabulary, and it drives this wedge between them and their parents, totally creating almost this us-versus-them mentality. We can't relate to each other, and this brings us to the passage here, to the passage here we're looking at in Acts 6, 1 through 7. We're going to take a look at this, and I'm going to outline the passage this way. We're going to look at two groups of people, two different worldviews, the extreme tension between them, and one solution. Two groups of people, two worldviews, extreme tension, and one solution. And so in this passage, we have two groups of people. 
that are experiencing exactly what we described between parents and children, except this is happening between two groups of widows. On one side, we have the Hellenists, and scholars say these were most likely ethnically Jewish people that immigrated to Jerusalem, right? They were out in their villages, they worshiped in the synagogue, but they grew up speaking Greek. And this is not unlike a lot of students that I have met in Kathmandu who tell me that though they grew up in a Hindu home, speaking Nepali from a young age, they now think and dream in English. And that thought alone is what, what spurred me to begin this study on them. I'm like, what does that do to your identity? What is going on there? And so these Hellenists, these widows, um, in a very similar way, grew up in one culture, but have adopted another, but have adopted another. Now, on the other side, we have the, uh, the Hebrews, and um, they grew up in Jerusalem speaking mostly Aramaic, and they are in that world, and they grew up in Jerusalem with a sense of privilege and superiority because Jerusalem is the political and religious center of life for all the Israelites. And so it's very easy, would be very easy for these widows to say, we're from here and you're not. Perpetuating that us versus them mentality. Similar to students in Kathmandu, by the way, also the religious, cultural, political center of the entire country. The largest temples are there, the center of Hinduism for that country. And there are a lot of young people that say, we're from here, and you're not. I have served in a youth group in Nepal where an interesting dynamic takes place. Two groups of students. One, you have these students that go to private school, and they only speak English, and they're in the youth group. Another group of students, they go to the public school. They only speak Nepali. And somehow my job as a youth pastor, youth leader, was to get them to interact and bridge that gap. Not easy very difficult. And this is the situation that the apostles found themselves in, which brings us to the church leaders. They're also in these two different groups. The apostles, they probably could speak some Greek, like these Hebrew widows could speak some Greek, but not a whole lot. Very much into the culture of Jerusalem. And then you have these, these other people, Stephen and the others, that um, they were ethnically Jewish, but they spoke Greek, think and dream in Greek. But then you have one interesting guy, um, Nicolaus, who's from Antioch. He was probably born a Greek, ethnically Greek, not Jewish, and converted to Judaism. And so we have some different dynamics going on where people grew up in one culture, but they're either adopting or experimenting with another culture, much like the young people that I saw at this hotel. So the church leaders do something ingenious. They say, we're going to solve this problem, and we're going to, take some, we're, we're going to um, lay our hands on and commission some leaders that are culturally like you and speak the same language as you, and we're going to solve this problem. And that's great, and it's wonderful. But the problem actually is much deeper than that much deeper than that, which means that the solution to this deeper problem is nothing less than revolutionary. Nothing less than revolutionary. 
quite a large claim. Why do I say that? Well, the differences in these people goes much deeper than just a difference in language. It is actually rooted in a difference in worldview. What is worldview? I tell my students, I think of worldview as two different sets of glasses, right? So you know the sunglasses where the, with red lenses? You put those on, everything looks red. They also have blue ones. You put blue ones on, everything looks blue. Imagine two groups of people wearing red glasses versus the people wearing blue glasses, and we take them out in the parking lot where a white car is parked and then ask them to discuss and debate, what color is that car? And then the tension comes alive. It's red. No, it's blue. And they can't agree. That's the way worldview works. And so um, one theologian, Craig Keener, he says, you know what? With these widows here, this definitely goes beyond language, goes to the worldview level. These women have adopted a posture that is Greek. They have completely adopted Greek culture. Now, in the chart that I want to show you, I am comparing and contrasting these two different worldviews. And this is where I take a little bit of liberty from the text and move into some of my studies a little bit, showing you the difference between Eastern and Western values. The Western values are what we call a guilt-innocence worldview. And the seeds of these worldview were actually um, planted 2,000 years ago within Roman culture. But they really didn't begin to bear fruit until the 1800s in the Enlightenment. And now with our globalized world and globalization, these values have been transported all over the world into cultures that share it in Eastern or honor-shame worldview, which is most of the world that is non-Western. And so let's take a look at these two different worldviews, these two different sets of glasses, if you will. In individualistic culture, the word that comes to mind is me. Everything is about me, my dreams, my purpose, my goals. But in the East, when you talk to young people there, it is a collectivist worldview. And it's not my goals, it is what are the dreams of my family? What do I need to be involved in? What is the purpose that moves my family forward, that moves my tribe forward? Um, it's interesting. I have my, my two kids here that kind of have these two worldviews within them, and my oldest here, Anjali, she knew she was going to be used as an illustration. That's why she sat in the front, because if I cross a line, she can throw something at me. That would be her American side coming out, by the way. <laughs> but for her, you love this, don't you? But her Eastern side, it's interesting. She's um, pursuing, pursuing acting and music and all this stuff. Sorry, I didn't get permission to share this beforehand. But, um, but she said, uh, you know, I'm very conscious that whatever I do, I'm representing more than myself. I'm representing my family. I'm representing Nepal when I sing this song, when I dress this way, when I take this part. And I thought, wow, I could care less. <laughs> I don't think that way at all. Why? Because I'm an American, and it's about me. <laughs> my dreams, my goals, not anything to do with the family or anyone else. They're all on their own, okay? And within the West, there are written expectations, right? Written expectation or laws. And if you cross those, you're in trouble, right? You pay the price. But in Eastern contexts, 
the expectations are often unspoken. You can cross lines without knowing it, but that's not as important as the role that you inhabit and the hierarchy. Are you the superior, the inferior? Are you somewhere in the middle? Even the Nepali language has four different levels of honor, and you have to address someone accordingly, depending on who you're speaking to. So when you cross these lines in the West, your conscience is pricked, so to speak, right? You know on the inside when you're doing something right or when you're doing something wrong. It's internal. In the East, it's completely different. It's moderated by the group, by community gossip. And so you're careful not to cross that line because it would be shameful, not just for you, but it would be shameful for your family, for your whole tribe, possibly your nation. But as Westerners, we don't think like that. If I cross the line, it affects me, the transgressor. In the East, you cross a line, it affects the entire group. In the West, if we cross that line, we say, oh, I made a mistake. And we make up for it maybe by apologizing or paying a fine if we break a law, if we break the speed limit. In the East, we cross that line and we think, I am a mistake. And it affects my being. How do we deal with that? We deal with that by cleansing or reconciliation, fixing the broken relationship. So two different mentalities. And um, what happens around the world is that now, with globalization, there's an uploading and downloading of various values. I'll use hip-hop as an example. It's very popular here in the United States. And that music, along with all of its values, has been uploaded into the globalized cloud above. And then over here in Asia, as far away as China, Korea, even Nepal, that music is downloaded. Those values are downloaded. And so you literally get the East slamming into the West, and they got to decide what they do with it. They filter through it and everything else, and they have literally injected some of those same cultural forms of hip-hop or whatever youth culture you can think of, and they have, have kind of like a Trojan horse put their Asian values in there and then uploaded it back into the cloud, and we're over here in the West thinking this K-pop stuff looks pretty cool. And we download it, and now we have those Asian values coming our way, along through a bunch of other things because of our globalized world. It's not impacting us yet the same way it impacts over there in the East, but it is coming. And so back to the text, similar way, the Greek culture was everywhere in Jerusalem, just like Western values are everywhere in Nepal. It's everywhere. Hellenism is everywhere to such an extent that it drove a wedge between the parents on one side, who are very traditional in their Israelite thinking, and young people who are adopting a Greek posture to such an extent that it affected even the sports of that day because they would engage in Greek wrestling in the nude without clothing. Very common at that time. Imagine how honor-shame parents felt about that. Oh my gosh. I mean, we get concerned with, you know, sometimes the girls, you can't go out there wearing that. You certainly can't go out there wearing nothing. <laughs> Engaging in sports, okay, totally changes the meaning of soccer mom, but that's beside the point. 
it affected the culture to such an extent that even the rabbis, the youth pastors of the day, decided to join the young people, right? Amazing. And so looking at this, there's obviously a huge tension between parents and children that sets up that same us versus them mentality. And we have that in Asia as well. Remember our illustration of the sunglasses? Here's what happens with young people and the extreme tension between them. Um, the sunglasses caused these widows to look at things in a completely different way and set some of them up to feel superior, some of them to feel inferior, and they began to feel neglected and said, you're doing this simply because we're ethnically different, because we speak a different language, and then they blamed the church leaders. Does that sound familiar at all? No, no, okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we know, we know how that works. We know the dynamics. And so um, as we look at, at Asian young people and the tension that they face, it, it's a similar thing. They begin to blame parents. They begin to blame society and everything else. Uh, complaining, psychologists suggest, in and of itself, complaining is not bad, right? You get that tension building up within you, you got to get it out. Oh my gosh, I had a horrible day. Oh my gosh, the traffic, that was insane. That's okay. But blaming is a bit different. Blaming affects you physically, okay? One, one uh, psychologist, Andreas Blundell, he says, blame protects your ego. In a way, blaming is a form of social comparison that is status-seeking. If you blame someone, it puts you in the superior seat, making you feel more important and the good person as opposed to the bad. Of course, some people use blaming to make themselves a victim. This is really still an ego move, as when you are in poor me mode, it means you get everyone else's attention and are still the good person. Whether you're using blame to be superior or a victim, both come from a lack of self-esteem. The question to ask might even be not so much, why am I blaming, as why do I feel so bad about myself that I have to blame others to feel better? Interesting. So the tension is not just out there. It's in here. Something's going on inside of us. And this is what happened what is happening with the widows, that tension was bubbling up within them and blaming was the result. Same thing happened to Moses and the people he was leading, by the way. Again, psychologists suggest that there's a reason why blaming is so unhealthy for us. Um, it affects us physically. A study was done in Stanford and they discovered that people who habitually blame, not just the complaining type or venting, but and not just someone who blames once in a while and says, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. But it's their habit. They're continually blaming others. That is their posture. And Stanford found that a part of your brain actually shrinks, the hippocampus. If you're a perpetual blamer, it affects you physically. And that's horrible. But the apostles in this passage recognized that the problem was deeper than that. It was spiritual. It was spiritual. Why do I say that? Well, in order to understand why I make that claim, we need to go all the way back to Genesis, where the blame game began with Adam and Eve. 
See, it's interesting when Adam and Eve crossed that line, the rule, the law that God set, they became guilty. What is also equally interesting is that their eyes were open and they were filled with shame and they hid. And then God calls them out and they're filled with fear to such an extent that what does Adam do? He blames Eve. What does Eve do? She blames the serpent. And on it goes. This, this mixture of guilt and shame that we feel manifests in fear, which further manifests in looking for someone to blame so we're off the hook. Very interesting. Very interesting. The problem is not just psychological. It is spiritual. It's not just bad for your health physically, but it's bad for your soul bad for your soul. And so here we are. Um, Let's take a look at the world of young people. I have two circles to show you. Because of globalization, the Eastern values literally, or other way around, my apologies, the Western values are slamming into the Eastern values, and it creates this incredible tension within. In my studies, I discovered that young people are experiencing Identity confusion, that's not a revelation to anybody. All young people experience identity confusion. But it is exacerbated by this process, right? Exacerbated. I had to look that up. It means it makes it even worse, okay? Exacerbated. And so we have young people that are in this tug of war. They're on one side, and they're pulling against the cultural stream. And what they inevitably find is that they're torn between two worlds, the East on one side, the West on the other. They're being pulled in two different directions, creating incredible tension within, identity confusion, and yes, fear. And they can often lash out at others because of that. And as we know, because of the uploading and downloading of values, this is not just an Eastern thing, but it happens in the West as well. And so they have these contrasting values that are competing for dominance within them. How do we resolve this? How do we resolve this? Well, in Asia, they adopt different identities to try to resolve this. Okay? Again, they're torn between the two, and they say, you know what? I'm going to go to a concert, and I'm just going to go totally Western for a day, (laughs) or maybe for years, maybe permanently, and I'm going to resolve this tension. Others say, you know what? I don't want a wedge driven between me and my parents. I'm going to go totally Eastern, and I'm going to stay in traditional attire. I'm going to keep the values of my parents and everything else, and I'm just going to play ball, play along, and relieve that tension. Some, they try to balance the two and walk that tightrope. Others just give up. Forget it. Retreat in the world of drugs, whatever it is, to resolve that tension. Here's the problem with all those strategies. None of them work. None of them work. And before we're too hard on the people in the East or young people in general, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. When we give in to that fear, that mixture of guilt and shame, it sets us up to root our identity in something that creates an us versus them mentality, whether it's race, politics, the way we vote, religion, 
here's my group, and if you don't agree with me, I will cancel you. It's interesting because those are very much honor-shame dynamics in the West. And so what is happening in Asia with Western values coming there, the Eastern values are coming here. And so we try to identify with different groups. We root our identity in these things, sometimes even in the church, so that we feel better. Either we're playing the victim or we're playing the superiority card to resolve that tension that we all have inside of us, inside of us. None of those things work. What is the solution? The solution is nothing less than Sunday school answer A. Jesus. Yes, very good class. Okay. Specifically, the gospel. The gospel. Now, what do I mean by the gospel and how does it resolve that tension? Well, we all know what the gospel is, right? Uh, Jesus died on the cross for us to pay the penalty of our sin, to take on the wrath of God so we don't have to, to wash away our guilt, right? True. That is true. But it is limited. Okay? I know I'm getting on dangerous ground here. But it is limited. That understanding of the gospel, that perspective, is one set of glasses only. And it's only 500 years old since the time of the Reformation, for those of you who know. Only 500 years old. And it addresses one part of the problem only, our guilt. See, when I travel in Asia, I had this experience in China, and I explained to someone that they're a sinner, and they have guilt, and Jesus died for them, and they need to resolve that. Their mind immediately thinks, I'm not a criminal, because that's what they think. I don't have sin. I'm not a criminal. Haven't killed anyone. We do that in our world as well. Haven't killed anyone. I'm not a sinner. I don't need this Jesus. Took a long time for me to reframe those questions and ask, have you ever done anything shameful? Ooh, yeah. Have you ever done anything that shamed your family or shamed your tribe? Or have you ever secretly done anything that if it got out, it would bring tremendous shame on you, your family, your tribe, your nation, and there's not an Asian on the planet that can't relate to that. And what is amazing is that the gospel speaks to that also. Yes, Jesus died for our guilt to save us from the wrath of God, but he also died to cleanse us from shame so that he could pour out indescribable honor upon us. And we need to root our identity in this gospel. That needs to be the core of who we are. If we don't, not only is it unhealthy for us physically, it's unhealthy for our souls spiritually because we will fall into an us versus them mentality. And I'm confident in making this claim. If we don't root our identity in Christ, we will root it in something else that will set up that us versus them mentality. And so what is the answer? Well, the answer, of course, is the gospel. But I want to take us back to this passage. The apostles knew that as well. They knew that the problem was deeper than just widows feeling neglected. 
they knew that the solution was more radical than simply, hey, let's get some volunteers to uh, serve these people and get this problem off my back. Why do I say that? Because they said so. (laughs) They said, look, let's gather some people, let's take care of this problem in a temporary way because it would not be right. It's right there in verse 2. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. The ministry of the Word, which scholars agree is synonymous for the gospel message. They weren't talking about running Sunday school programs or Bible studies or home fellowships, but it was the ministry of the gospel because they knew that it would be the gospel in the long run that would break down this us versus them mentality. Okay? Now, lest we, we be tempted to think that, that rooting our identity in the gospel just sets up another us versus them mentality, right? Okay, I'm rooted in the gospel. I'm in the church. I, I identify with Christ, and they don't. That's impossible because of this. It doesn't depend on you. See, when I root my identity in other things, I root my identity either in my accomplishments, I did this, I did that, I have straight A's, or I root my identity in my being. I was born in Kathmandu, I'm from a high caste family, priestly family, we're important, and you're not, right? But when it comes to the gospel, it has nothing to do with you. You really can't root yourself in the gospel. (laughs) It is something Jesus does. What we can do is come to an understanding of what Christ has accomplished for us. Jesus is the one who died on the cross to wash away our guilt, to wash away our shame, and to invite us and say, come to me for life, for life. It is nothing we do. It is everything he did, and that is the gospel. So with this... expanded understanding of death, burial, and resurrection, we can flesh out our identity. And that brings me to these 11 statements that are in your bulletin that I want us to look at. Um, When we came to Christ, one theologian said that there are no less than 33 things that change about our identity in an instant. My friend Amy Sun, she writes a blog for her family and everything else. Her, her children are also half Asian, which is amazing. And she wrote out these 11 statements. They are 11 of the 33. 33 is a lot to put in one blog. So she did 11. And she recommends that to root our identity in these things, we must meditate on them daily. Look at them. Maybe look at one in a week and really Root yourself deeply into that. Take a look at it. Um, Let's put some of these things. Oh, before we put it on the screen, I have another uh, quote for you. Um, There is another uh, missiologist, Paul Hebert. He is commenting on these dynamics of two different worlds creating tension within us, especially people in Asia or the Middle East or whatever. And he says this. He says, in the long run and at the deepest levels, 
we need to work toward integration or balancing of these two cultures within us. To do so, we need a well-developed metacultural framework. What is that? It means some perspective that goes beyond culture, right? Metaculture, metacultural, that enables us to accept what is true and good in all cultures and to critique what is false and evil in each of them. For Christians, this metacultural perspective must be deeply rooted in biblical truth. And Amy Sun has summarized seven different, sorry, 11 different um, of these biblical truths for us. Let's take a look at them. It is amazing to think that we're more than conquerors. That should help us with our fear, right? Root us in that. That we're raised and seated with him in the heavenlies. Tremendous honor as part of our identity. The righteousness of God in Christ. We're righteous, why? Because we have no guilt. Christ has taken that away. We're free from the law of sin and death. Christ has taken away all of our guilt. Therefore, the punishment, the penalty, not paid by us, paid by Jesus. Always led triumphantly in Jesus. There's tremendous honor in that. That deals with our fear as well. A new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. That deals with all of it. And on and on it goes. Let's look at these things and meditate them until the very last one we can say like Paul, I am complete in Christ. In Christ, all of my issues with guilt and shame have been resolved. Therefore, the fear melts away. And I am not caught up in this us versus them mentality that's tearing our culture apart. Because my identity is rooted in the gospel. And I'm free from that. I'm free from that. To help us understand the implications of the gospel much better and how large the gospel is, I want to show us a quick video. And then... I'll wrap it up in 30 seconds to a minute after that. In the beginning was God. He's like an honorable elder with a grand yurt. He's like the great uncle we all wish for, powerful, respected, and always faithful. One day God created the mighty mountains, the warm sun, and fresh waters to showcase his glory. Then God made Adam and Eve, crowning them with great honor and glory. He said, have my authority, rule over my creation, bear my glory. They were God's children living in God's honorable village. Even with no clothes, Adam and Eve felt no shame. Then Satan appeared and said, get more glory, eat the fruit, and be equal to God. But the second they tasted the fruit, their honor vanished. They felt shame. God found them hiding. You have been disloyal children, shaming yourselves and dishonoring me. What do we humans do with disgraceful things like dirt, pigs, and outhouses? We keep them far away to preserve our dignity. So likewise, God banished them. Adam was dejected. I have no name, no glory, no family, and no honor. I have only shame. In the shameful village, Adam and Eve had children, who had children, who had us. Do you know what it means that we are descendants of Adam and Eve? Imagine if your mom was the village prostitute, or your dad defected during battle. You'd get their shame. We inherit shame, 
then our sin brings on more shame. So one day someone had an idea. Let's make our own honor. They created multiple groups or cultures. One said you had to wear black suits and drive Mercedes, but the other determined you have to wear orange robes and be a monk. If you maintain the group's expectations, you got some honor and status. But this honor was temporary because it was made by humans. These group rules actually increased shame by excluding some people. Even when God selected one group to bless the other groups with honor, they boasted in their election and shunned others. When people tried to create honor for themselves, they only produced more shame. The only person who could help the honorless was God, the source and essence of honor. So God became human and entered the shameful village. Could you ever imagine a big politician with a mansion going to live in a trash dump? That was Jesus. Jesus was amazing. One time a bleeding woman snuck up and touched him, and he wasn't defiled or shamed. She was purified and dignified by Jesus. He loved and accepted everyone regardless of their shame. Jesus spoke of a great feast where the disgraced and dismissed were honored guests. Following Jesus, not the cultural rules, makes people acceptable and worthy. But the people living for earthly honor were threatened by this. So Jesus was arrested, mocked, whipped, spat on, and nailed upon a cross. He was covered in shame publicly. Why? Why would one perfectly honorable person be so shamed? The shame Jesus bore was not his own. He bore our shame. And then Jesus fully defeated that shame. He rose from death to glory. Jesus crossed back to God's village and got a great name and place of honor. Jesus' resurrection from the dead built a new bridge from death to life, from earth to heaven, from shame to honor. Finally, people could get what they always wanted, true and eternal honor from God. But not everyone followed Jesus to God's village. Some were content with the false honor they accumulated. A few thought their shame too great even for God, and others feared what relatives might think. But some trusted that Jesus took their shame and followed him. To them, God gave a new robe, hat, and inheritance documents. Humans were back in God's village. They lived honorably ever after. Okay. I did not draw that, just so you know. My drawing's better than that. I hope you, well, your picture of the gospel has been expanded Right? And I want you to understand that Jesus is the answer to every cultural problem that we face. Indeed, every personal problem that we face. Just because we don't see it today doesn't mean we can't dig into the scriptures and get the answers. We need to take off one set of glasses, put on another set, and look at the scriptures freshly. Freshly. So what is the result of rooting our identity in this expanded understanding of the gospel. Well, the apostles understood that it would break down this us versus them mentality. They knew that that us versus them mentality was hindering the gospel. And once it was resolved, we see the results in verse 7. It says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, 
and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. When we apply the gospel to our own lives and we root our identity in Christ, the gospel spreads. If we don't root our identity in Christ, we will root it in something else and the gospel will be hindered. Let's pray together. Lord, Heavenly Father, may we learn from this. Would you give us grace and expand our understanding of the gospel and as a result, root our identities even deeper into Christ so that the gospel will move forward. Free us, Lord. We repent of rooting our identities in anything other than you. And I know, Lord, this is not like flipping a switch. This is more like the fading of, a, of, of the light. Over time, we become more and more like you. And so, Lord, I pray that by your grace, you would take us a couple of extra steps, even as we worship and take communion together and reflect on everything that you've done for us and who we are because of what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.